electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on Squawk Pod at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Andrew Ross Sorkin sits down with founder and CEO of Palantir, Alex Karp. Palantir has launched five of the most important products in the world, some of which are are playing an active role in every part of your life, both in terms of disseminating COVID, vaccine. Every time we launch a product, people think we're idiots or crazy or insane, and very often these products power the world. The polarizing tech products that have proved as controversial as they are influential. We are perhaps a little too used to being unpopular and, and, you know, sometimes kind of enjoy it. So now we're trying to have a more peaceful, friendly approach. Data's role in the war in Ukraine and whether there's a right side to history. Product that supplied your vaccine, products that are involved in every war effort in the world come from us. That interview, plus some tips on sleep with a familiar voice here on the pod, our host Katie Kramer returns. The cause in the biz, sleep fitness. (laughs) There's a biz. There's a biz, sleep fitness, sleep efficiency. It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2022, and Squawk Pod from Switzerland begins right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod, where we're delivering unto you the best of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. And today's big interview, a sit down with Palantir co-founder and CEO, Alex Karp. Palantir is a hugely influential, hugely controversial software company that's provided data services for companies around the world, like Merck, Airbus, and United Airlines. Palantir's data analytics have proved particularly useful for surveillance and predictive policing. 
leveraged by various arms of the U.S. government. It's worked with the U.S. Army, Navy, Department of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, and, notoriously, the U.S. Custom and Border Patrol, tracking immigrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. The polarizing Palantir was private and pretty secretive for 17 years, until, in 2020, the at-the-time $16 billion company listed publicly on the New York Stock Exchange. Palantir is open for trading. It's a tech company founded, like many, many others, in Silicon Valley. But Palantir prides itself on railing against traditional Silicon Valley values. And Alex Karp, its founder and CEO, has been vocal over the years about the fissure between his tech and big tech. He even moved the company HQ from California to Colorado, explaining himself on our air last year. I think people leaving will help California quite a bit. But California needs competitions. We left because it became a monoculture politically. Now, while the company's public status means it can't be as secretive as it once was, while its government clients are now outnumbered by its corporate ones, CARP, famously eccentric, has remained consistent in his vision for the company. Products that we'll build over that period will, will, will be unique, and they will tilt the course of history uh, in, in the favor of things that are good and noble uh, and will not avoid the complexity that's necessary to do that. Andrew Ross Sorkin has interviewed Alex Karp numerous times over the years, often at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Here's my colleague Katie, you know her, in the Swiss Alps with Andrew. So Alex uh, well, found Palantir along with Peter Thiel and Joe Lonsdale um, is a company that grew out of 9-11, in fact, a software company effectively to help the U.S. government track terrorists. And they have built a very powerful software business um, effectively around data and data sharing and being able to collect data in very new, unique ways. And as a result, the business, if you will, serves not just the U.S. government, but many of the U.S. allies and their governments, uh, and increasingly corporations as well. And one of the things that Alex Karp said is that this this spring, seeing the, the Russian invasion into Ukraine, seeing the response um, of other countries around the world, and also seeing just the, the lack of immediate success from Russia's invasion, Russia's invasion, he thinks that might be making other countries rethink their military priorities and their strategies. Well... I think what he is trying to suggest is actually that you may not need uh, to have as big, heavy armies, uh, if you will, as you used to, but actually that very sort of tactical uh, efforts based, frankly, on technology and software, as may be the case proving itself out in Ukraine, uh, may be a new model for how countries think about their defense and therefore their defense budgets. On your conference call, you talked a lot about your anxiety or nervousness about a potential nuclear war or nuclear attack. How real do you think that is? Well, um, I think it's real. And um, so there's been a, a major kind of shift in how wars are fought and like people are technically looking at how wars are fought. I think we'll look at the Ukraine war as a shift away from 
heavy hardware uh, wins to uh, heroes training a kinetic action and software can really push back and beat a highly trained armed in the old way we armed adversary and that's just a major shock to the system and when there's shocks to the system uh, people really lose they, lo they, they fall outside of the pattern of what normally would happen and I so if you looked at this what ha in this war if you were on the Russian side you're like okay look we spend 65 billion dollars a year on military sure America spends 800 billion but then we're among the world's best engineers, we've known for being among the world's best fighters, and we're against an adversary that doesn't you know, have a budget, a relevant budget for, for armies. And what the Russian side discovered, and what I think people are noticing all over the world is just what we've known in tech for the last 20 years, and we've been screaming about, you know, you have, you know, in this case you have heroes willing to sacrifice their lives to fight, and you have people using you know, kinetic action, but more low-end kinetic action, so not battleships, uh, combined with an ability to understand what's going on the ground, can, can outmaneuver and outperform. But talk about the nuclear risk. Well, again, that puts a shock into the system. So then there's a question of what happens after you have a shock in the system. And when you have a shock in the system, you basically you go into unpredictable. And one of the reasons we underestimate the risk is we've had, since World War II, a system that's functioned. Basically, all most people in the West have gotten more educated, wealthier, and people believe that system will override. It'll any, be rational. It'll be rational, but we're now in a moment where the system system actually flips, and they're just moments of complete irrationality. And we're not. Our institutions have not taught us how to deal with that, and therefore we systematically underestimate the risk. That that that. What do you think the risk is? If you were to handicap well, it. Well, I think most people think the risk is like below one percent. I think, of course, it depends on the duration. So if you have a long duration, I think, yeah, the risk is modelable and it's probably in like the 20, 30 percent range. How do you think this ends? I don't know, but I don't, I think, well, I'll tell you, first of all, what's begun now is every large nation in the world is evaluating, wait, wait a minute, our, is, is our offensive capability actually offense or will defense offense like in Ukraine be able to beat us? And that if every single large country in the world is looking at this, not just our adversaries, but also our allies. So, you know, we're going to spend, what does it mean to spend in Germany, France, UK, which are solid allies? Also, China will think, well, what does it mean to actually, uh, you know, for people, you know, our, our enemies and adversaries that they may be spending on the right things and we're spending on the wrong things? Um, what do you think the lesson is for China in all of this? The lesson for every big country is, holy <laughs> We've been buying all this heavy stuff, and if people are willing to fight fight as heroes, fight to the last person, which it takes resolve and heroism, and they actually know how to operate because they have access to software and can use the data, they might actually be able to beat us. President Biden uh, made some comments about militarily defending Taiwan. Uh, the White House tried to roll it back afterwards. What do you think is really happening there? Was that a was that a Bidenism? Was that something else? Is there a change in policy? I don't. I don't. Let me wait. I'm not in that business, luckily, because I'd be terrible at it. Uh, being a politician, I, you know, would not get out of the gate. And so, and I often understand politicians poorly because I. But I think there's just a shift in zeitgeist. You know, it's like people look and say, so America, America, we spend 800 billion roughly on defense, and I think China spends just over 300 billion, rough numbers. And so there's a just a. A, a view of okay, well, you know, I mean, maybe that's rough parody, but but the zeitgeist right now is 
this is a different moment. And small countries, a country like Taiwan, other countries that really want to you know, act in their own interests are just in a very different state. And I think that seeps into the zeitgeist, which seeps into what Biden says and seeps into the reaction. But, you know, I'm not I'm not a reader of politicians, obviously. Do you, but do you what do you think the risk is that there is an intervention or that China- well, let me frame it this way? I believe had Russia known that the combination of kinetic hero and operational use of data from edge from wherever uh, things that you know we've been looking at for the last 15 years had they understood that that the impact of that is much greater the same way old institutions that are you know being eaten up by tech you know understood that yeah five nerds in the basement can actually eat up your whole business you would not have you'd had a very different situation and i and you know, like you know i i'm i'm a i i i i'm deeply respectful of our adversaries like china and russia are super interesting super complicated super sophisticated highly competent cultures they they understand everything i'm saying and they're they're metabolizing it Metabol, metabolizing new reality takes time but believe me you know they're obviously yeah um let's talk about the business well let's talk about the stock are you watching the stock price really uh, never but you must look at it given given what's happened given the collapse and i ask because i imagine that you have employees we're looking I, at that I, stock I, price, I, and, and that creates its own Yeah, uh, let me explain. Let me, let me just, first of all, Palantir's launched five of the most important products in the world, some of which are, pow- are playing an active role in every part of your life, both in terms of disseminating COVID, vaccine, and lots of things we really don't talk about. Every time we launch a product, people think we're idiots or crazy or insane, and very often these products power the world. So I don't see going on a DPO any different than launching a product. We're in the uh, very difficult times. Palantir is built for difficult times. Uh, of course, I care what employees, investors are going through, but what they should care about, and what I do care, what I care about is, where's the company going to be in a couple years? And I'll, let me tell you another thing about bad times. Our primary competition are startups in, in, invigorated by the hot, somewhat caustic, and addictive fumes of loose venture dollars. Those companies are being cut off from the, the vapors of those fumes, and that affects my business much more than any stock price, meaning that I do not lose employees to these companies that are the two days before they fail. The people that should come to Palantir and power a better world don't go to a startup that's gonna essentially build consumer products that help none of us. So th- that's like a massive opportunity for Palantir, and that's what I'm focused on. What about the culture of Palantir? I mean, you have a unique culture, and I'm curious how you think that plays, we've talked about sort of uh, the political culture that's taking place or the uh, more progressive cultures in certain, in certain of these other parts of Silicon Valley, how you think? Well, they call themselves progressive as they uh, build parasitic products that uh, in their sense of progressive, is progressive in the sense that the, the, the real value of the revenue progresses to their bank account. <laughs> but I don't know how progressive they actually are. Do you think that big tech is going to have a reckoning in, given what's happening in the economy and given what's happening um, in the market? Well, you know, change some of the I, dynamics I, that you talked about? I do about? think so. The big, big tech, I doubt it. But the, the, the moderate sized tech, you know, I mean, a lot of these people are depressed because they live in a world where, you know, for every unit of effort they put in, they've gotten 100 units back. And for the first time, they have to live with what the rest of the world lives with is they did their best. And now they're, you know, it didn't go as well as they thought. And so, you know, I think if you could sell like some form of heroin to them that would put them asleep for two years, 
till they could wake up till a better time. So you could sell for any amount of money. So I think that's probably, you know, their depression is going to be a problem for their companies. Um, but, but the reason why structurally it's a long way from changing is the parasitic model of we, we take your asset, whether the asset is your data in individuals or your, inter, your data as an enterprise, and we sell it back to you where we make all the money, is highly lucrative. Let me ask you a question about Palantir itself. One of the things, and this goes to the stock price, but it goes to, I think, a perception in the marketplace. There was a Morgan Stanley analyst, you probably read it a month ago, maybe. You know what I'm about to say? No, I don't uh, read this. You don't, you don't read what the analysts say? I know what they're going to say in two years. Why do I read them now? What are they going to say in two years? They're going to say, you know what? Palantir focused on building high-quality revenue. 60% of it comes from the only source that isn't going to go away. They, break, they, break, they make free cash flow off of that, and they've delivered five of the most interesting products in the world. By the way, they will then be writing about Apollo and our stuff on the edge and the military stuff we can't talk about, and our revenues will have increased. And in the end, it's a multiple on revenue, right. and that's what they're going to write. So so what this Morgan Stanley analyst said is, this is a company that should be considered a consulting company, not a software company. And, and that was the, in terms of what the multiple that should be applied to that company. How, how do you think about that? It's complete idiocy. I mean, it's just like, look, the company that supplied, the product that supplied your, 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 the, your vaccine, which I'm sure he took, comes yep. from us. The products that are involved in every war effort in the world come from us. We're working in environments I don't even know about where my product is installed, no one has access. We're, it is like, it's like, this is just like something that people believe. I'll tell you, this comes from when we build a product, we deploy it and then we iterate to the point of product productivity. Um, one, other, one other corporate question, because uh, you made a comment about it, uh, this last quarter, which is how you deal as a company uh, with the IT sides of corporations that's more of a real issue. And I'm actually curious yeah, okay. about that, what the lesson okay. of that experience the, Yes, was. We, were, we are perhaps a little too used to being unpopular. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes kind of enjoy it. And so that unpopularity plays out in interactions with internal structures. And over the last 20 years, we've fought with a lot of ITP. By the way, sometimes correctly, we, you know, Operation Warp Speed, we fought with people on the inside of the White House to get it done. We got it done. Uh, you see all these places we fought, a lot of the things that made your life better, we fought with an IT thing. But we, got, we get a little too used to fighting with them, and they fight back. And so now we're trying to have a more peaceful, friendly approach, and we're, we're developing new efforts, and it seems to be working, not perfectly. And that, that is a legitimate criticism of Palantir. But by the way, that legitimate criticism only exists because the IT people correctly understand the power of our product, and it is threatening. Maybe your analyst friend should go talk to some of the IT people who don't like us. Alex Carp, thank you. Take care. Appreciate it. Now, a fun fact about Andrew, and it turns out Alex Carp, they're both obsessed with rest. Seems, even though it shouldn't, a little counterintuitive for two absurdly busy people. Our familiar voice, Katie Kramer, got the scoop on sleep for us here at home. He gave you a lesson. What did he try to teach you to do? Well, I don't <laughs> know. I don't know how much of our our viewers and our listeners know, but I am a sleep crazy person. And when I mean a sleep crazy person, I care deeply about sleep and as a result have become sort of addicted to various gadgets to track sleep and I do all sorts of very weird things to get better sleep. And so um, he we got into a whole conversation about that and I wear an aura ring and all sorts of other things. Anyway, he said, look, if you really want to get better sleep, deeper sleep, 
uh, more REM sleep, which is what we're all looking for, in the same amount of time that you're actually sleeping. So this is about, effectively, they call this, they call this in the biz sleep fitness. <laughs> There's a biz. There's a biz. Sleep fitness, sleep efficiency. Gosh, um, okay. That the Tai Chi is mm. actually something that he does regularly, daily, and religiously almost, and that he believes that if I were to do it, so he gave me a lesson, if I did it, uh, I believe, five uh, minutes a day, I think he told me I need to do it five minutes a day every day for two months, that I would see a demonstrable shift in my deep sleep as measured by the aura ring. So I'm going to be putting that to the test, and he had me uh, moving water, uh, or imaginary water, I should say, uh, back and forth with my arms in a uh, almost... Um, meditative yes. effort. Yeah. If you want to see some of that Tai Chi lesson, I highly recommend you check out our Twitter feed at Squawk CNBC. But for today, that does it for this episode. Thank you for tuning in as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, you know what to do. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you do already, thanks. We'll meet you back here tomorrow with more Davos content. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 